It was ironic to me that on, on the week we were going to honor small group leaders, I got this email from a young lady who used to be a part of the church here named Lexi Emerson. And let me just read to you what she said, and this will say more than anything I could say about our small group ministry. Good morning, buddy. I want to share a story about my life group with you. I know when I first started attending Landmark, I was on the fence about joining one. So if you talk to anyone who's in that situation, feel free to share this. So if you're on the fence, this letter's for you, all right? I moved to Alabama to Tim Faulkner in 2003, and I ended up staying in Montgomery until December of 2011. I met Greg and Rayla Black through Faulkner, and Rayla persistently encouraged me to attend their life group. She eventually wore me down. That's a spiritual gift. And I started attending. The group changed over the years, but it was always a great time, and I've enjoyed watching all the kids from those groups grow up. I get an opportunity to come back, I got a job opportunity to move back to Missouri, which is why I moved in 2011. The most, the most emotional goodbyes I said in Montgomery were with my life group. And every time I come back to visit, I try to schedule time with them. Unfortunately, after I moved from Montgomery, my house did not sell. And when I moved, so I had renters in the house until about a month ago. I came back to Montgomery and I found the house in worse shape than when I left it. When my life group found out about my house, the whole group was there to support me. They supported me through prayers, completing repairs they could make, and coordinating those they couldn't. Now my house is in better shape than it's ever been and on the market to sell. I can't imagine how stressful it would have been to try to do all this alone from 800 miles away. If you have someone unsure about joining a small group, let them know they are adding to their family for life which is a way of calling the life groups that's appropriate, families for life. I love how many families in our church have adopted and made adoption forever families, and the church family should be exactly the same way. Attending a service once a week won't get you there, but when you invest your time with a life group, you'll make connections that carry on for years to come. Thank you, Lexi, for sharing that. And what, a, what a great testimony, and I think myself... You know, I have a son who just has moved away to a city. Luke has moved to Corinth, Mississippi, where he doesn't know a soul. And my hope is that he's going to encounter a Greg and Rayla Black. They're going to become more than just somebody he sits with in church. They're going to make him a part of their family. And so today, we want to talk about being family. Because what Lexi found when she came here, she didn't just find a building. She didn't just find a, a worship experience. She didn't just find a preacher. She didn't find a church program. She found a group of people. She found family. She found the church. And, and today, in a world that celebrates the individual, that's what our world celebrates. The world celebrates your individualistic self. We even have a magazine now called Magazine Self. If you'll track Amazon, over the last 90 days, there have been 18,000 books written about self-improvement. You see, the world tells you and I today, focus on yourself. Take some time for yourself. Look after yourself. Don't let anybody infringe on you. But God celebrates us. The world celebrates me. God celebrates us. God says, don't look after yourself, deny yourself. He says, love one another, care for one another. 
You know, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage here when we read our New Testaments today because the English language is limited when it comes to the word you. And we talked about this a few times, but when you see the word you in the New Testament, we have a hard time because in the English language, we don't have a singular and plural version of the word you. So whether it's singular or plural, it's just translated you. Which, if you'll look through the New Testament, a majority of the yous in the New Testament are plural. That's why Southerners are so much better Bible scholars. We know the word what? Y'all, okay? That's the way it happens. Let, let me give you an instance of this. Here's a great verse in the Bible. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I've read that verse the whole time, and guess who I thought about? Me. Christ in me, that's the hope of glory. It is a plural you. What he's saying there is Christ in you. When Christ dwells in us and God does the greatest miracle of all, which is the unity of his people, when God dwells in us, that's the hope of glory. And so today we understand that the Lord celebrates us. And we begin a new message series this morning called Life Together. The Bible addresses this. God wants us to learn how to be us. God didn't call us to this church to all be our own little individual disciples of Jesus. We were called to do this together. In fact, if you read through your New Testament, there are 58 one another passages that explain what we are to do for one another. Over the next seven weeks, we'll look at seven of those so that we can learn not just to do life, but to do life together. Let's go to the most famous one another passage in the Bible. John chapter 13. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I'll tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. It's a sad day. It's the end of Jesus' life. If it's, it's his last time with his disciples. We're about to hear some of his last words. Those are not trite words. Even to today, we, we love to, to remember the last words that someone has to say. They normally don't address trivial things. They address things that are important. And that's what Jesus does here. Now understand the group he's addressing. It's a group of diverse people that really don't belong together. These 12 disciples, they don't fit. You've got everyone from a tax collector to a terrorist. You've got everyone from someone who's cooperating the Romans to someone who's willing to kill the Romans. And you find them in this group. And this group, as you read to this point, they fuss a lot. They don't get things. They don't understand. And even right before Jesus' last time with them, they are arguing about who's the greatest. They're into me when Jesus says you need to be into us. And in just a few moments before the passage we're reading today, they've gathered around a table. And you understand in that day when you gathered around a table, you laid around a table. And you ate with your right hand while you leaned on your left arm. Now understand where that puts your feet. It puts your feet right in front or behind somebody's face. So my mama told me, wash your hands before dinner. Their mama told them, wash your feet before dinner. And they get here and nobody's washed their feet. 
And it's a mess because they're all thinking, I'm the greatest and I'm the greatest and I'm the greatest and, and only the lowliest would wash stinking feet. And guess what happens? Jesus gets up, he girds himself, and Jesus, the Son of God, washes the feet of stinking sinners, even ones that will deny him, even one that will betray him. And the Bible says when Jesus did this, he loved them to the utmost. Some translations, he loved them to the end. Jesus, before he gives the command we're about to read, he wanted to show them how to fulfill the command. And listen to what Jesus says in verses 34 and 35. This is where he drops the bomb. This is what's going to make you guys different. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. What's the defining mark of who we are? That in a world of bitterness, we love one another. In a world of jealousy, we love one another. In a world full of anger, we love one another. In a world where everyone's looking after self, we love one another. That was an amazing teaching. John never forgot it. We all know that John was the last apostle to live, the only one that died of natural causes. And when he's old and decrepit, he would love to visit the churches. And he would be taken to those churches and they'd say, John, you're the last apostle alive. You're the last guy that was actually with Jesus. Would you actually say something to us? And they'd bring John up before the church. He'd stand up and he would say very few things. This is all he would say. Little children, love one another. And they, they would be confused by that. They're like, come on, John, you've got a lot of knowledge. Tell us more than that. And so they would say, say something else. And he'd stand up one more time. He'd say, love one another. That's all. You see, he never forgot this moment when Jesus said, here's the big deal for you, and here's the big deal for the world, the way we love one another. What's he saying? What's so new about Jesus' command? You see, Jesus said this is a new command. We know in the Bible, this is not the only time people are told to love. They're commanded in the Old Testament to love. So what's so bold and what's so breathtaking about this command? What's new about Jesus' command? If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, what's new? Who we love. Number two, how we love. Number three, three when we love. That's our three points today. Who we love. Who do we love? We love one another. Now, that sounds exclusive, like we just got our own little club and we're going to just take care of each other. But you'll see by the end of this message, it's not. But what he does say here is there is a priority and a pres- preference for our love for each other. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 6.10. He says, do good unto all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. What's he saying? Make it your priority. You see, what we're trying to create in the church is a counterculture. We're trying to create a model where people are loved to a degree they're not loved anywhere else. That's the drawing power of the church. You see, I think Jesus would tell you and I, your best friends need to be Christians. That's priority. Here's the deal about this. here's, Here's the problem and the blessing of church. When the church does this and obeys Jesus, it is quite frankly the most wonderful place on the earth, isn't it? Anybody ever experienced that? 
Raise your hand. And when the church blows this and we don't love each other like this, it's the worst place on earth. How many of you experienced that? Raise your hand. I'm scared more of you experienced that. <laughs> and that's why Jesus says, Here, here's your priority. You are to love one another. You're to display to the world what it looks to be in relationship and friendship where a special kind of love is displayed. Now, let me talk about this for a moment because I think this is threatened in the day that we live. Three threats to us loving one another the way we ought to. Number one is, is simply distractions. We are so busy. We don't even know what's going on with our church family. I get tickled. This is just a small thing. But, you know, uh, we like to make announcements around here. And, and we, you know, we, we always say, you know, we're going to make them three or four weeks in advance. We're going to put it in your bulletin. We're going to send you about 10 emails a day. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to stop that, all right? But here's what tickles me, is I'll run into some of you in the hall, and you go, are, are we having the prayer meeting this week or next week, or did we already have it? Despite all the deluge of announcements, we don't really know what's going on. Because like me, your life is so distracted by so many things, and that's why Jesus says, this needs to be your priority. Oh, you've got your sports you love, and you've got your hobbies you love, and you've got your work, and you've got all that. That's good. You know, pay attention to that. But, but priority is for you to love the people God has put you in the body of Christ with. And then number two, very similar, is distance. Guys, listen to me. It's impossible to love someone you're not with. Did you hear that? Now, if we've been commanded to love each other the way Christ has loved us, some of you, it can't happen because you're just not here much. Listen, Christ's goal was not to get a bunch of attenders together. Anybody can do that. What he wanted was some members. That word member means our lives are intertwined with each other. It wasn't Jesus' goal for us just to become a group of individuals following him. It was his goal for us to be a family following him together. So some of you, you're not experiencing this kind of love because you're just not there. Like Lexi said in her letter so well, I'm just going to be frank with you. Because a lot of you fall in this category. Sunday morning's not enough. Well, it's enough for you to be an attender here, but it's not enough for you to have a family. And that's why Jesus says, this has got to come first. And, and here's, here's, doesn't make me mad, it makes me sad for you. About two weeks ago, we got to, to go to Pensacola. We've not lived in Pensacola for almost 19 years. We were young married and trying to make our marriage work and trying to just getting started being parents. And man, I go back to that place, man. My heart is just flooded with memories because those people were family. They taught us how to love each other. They taught us how to raise our children. They were there when our kids had surgery and we didn't have insurance and raise the money to pay for it. They were there in the good days and bad days. That's 20 years ago almost. And yet those are the experiences we had of a group of people that were committed to us and we were committed to them. And I'm saying, if you keep your distance, you're not going to experience that. You've got to be involved. 
You see, some, some of us, let me just get real specific if I can here. You go, well, you know, the elders just ask us to do three things, you know, go to Bible class, go to worship service, and go to small. Okay, that's nice. So how about some of the other things? I mean, does it have to be a requirement Do you come? You see, here's the me part of us. It's like, okay, how does this affect me, okay? Uh, I'll go to Bible class after, class after worship service this morning. If I like the teacher, if I like the curriculum, if my friends are in there, then I'll go to Bible class. But otherwise, again, it, 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 it's about me. It's not who could I go encourage, who could I go bless. This is where it really rattles me. Some of you, you'll come the night we have the great quarterly baby shower, and we'll honor you for having your baby and flood you with gifts, and then you won't show up the next quarter when we honor somebody else. Because it's about me. It's not about us. And I'm saying to you, nobody can do everything that goes on in this church, but here's what I'm trying to say to you. It's for us to be more than just a loose group of attenders. We've got to be enmeshed with one another enough that we know each other and we serve each other. And that brings me to the last of the, the threats, and I think this might be a big one for many of us. It's discouragement. Some of us, we tried this before. We went to the church. We went to the Bible class. We got involved in the small group. We, and something went haywire. Now listen to me. If that's something went haywire here at Landmark, I apologize to you. We don't always do everything we ought to do. But would you give us another chance? If something went haywire at some other church and you had this bad experience and you've been scarred to the point that you've made your mind up, I'm just not going to jump in again. Think how foolish that is. We don't do that in any other area of life. If you go out to eat today after church and you go to a restaurant and you don't have a good experience, what do you do? You either try it again or you find another restaurant. How many of you have had a, how many of you ever had a bad experience in a restaurant? Raise your hand. How many of you stopped eating? <laughs> Doug Amos, I about believe that about you, okay? You need to eat, brother. I mean, I'm telling you. It, it happens. And so, guys, if you've had that bad experience and you're discouraged and you're scared, that's okay. But don't let Satan convince you to keep you away from what's going to make your life meaningful, which is relationships. So, number one, how do we, what's new about this? Who we love. Number two, how we love. Jesus says, here's the way I want you to love. This is what makes his command different than any other command in the New Testament. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. He's raising the standard. Now, understand the context of this. How do you love? You wash feet. When Jesus talks about love here, he's not just talking about having sentimental feelings toward each other. Jesus is not calling you to feel something. He's calling you to do something. When Jesus laid around that table and saw all those dirty feet, I don't think he had some kind of sentiment. Oh, I love these guys' feet, and I love getting the mud off their feet. No, no, there wasn't some kind of... But he loved them. It wasn't just a feeling. It was an action. He did it. And so when we begin to be the people of God, we begin to take the actions that, that show us and show others what Jesus is like. Can you imagine the standard? This is wild that God thinks that through the Holy Spirit we might have a chance at this. We are to love one another as he has loved us. That's crazy. But when it happens, it's unbelievable. 
Let me make a couple points here about that, though. It's naive to think I can love this way without cost. It costs Jesus. You see, what we want is we want love as long as it doesn't cost me something. As long as I can stay home and do what I want to do when I want to do it, that's okay. My friends, here's, here's the deal with that. Real love will always cost you something. Whether it's with your marriage or with your children or with your church, it will cost you something. Because love says, let's do what's best for you, not what's best for me. Let's do what's best for the body of Christ, not for me as an attender. So when you're asking, will I go to this event or not? The question may need to be is, not what would I get out of it? Do I really like that teacher? Do I really like that worship style? The question probably needs to be, who could I go love? Who could I love in the name of Jesus? Now we'll get a little deeper on this for a little bit. And I'm about to probably offend everybody in this audience, okay? Because I'm going to talk about two things that have been in the news this week. And you probably won't agree with me on a lot of it. I'm going to talk about one thing I'm pretty excited about and one thing I'm saddened by. I am so proud of our governor for taking the Confederate flag down off the, off the Capitol. Not, I know, no, don't, don't clap, don't clap. I don't, my wife clapped, thank you. <laughs> my wife and my mother-in-law. And I know some of you don't agree with me this. And I didn't grow up believing. I grew up in this city where the great day was the Lee Lanier game. And you bought your tickets before the season, and there were 25,000 people in Crampton Bow every year. And Lanier's fight song was Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. And Lee's fight song was Dixie. And when Lee scored a touchdown, the most beautiful majorette with a Confederate flag suit would wave the Confederate flag. And it was exciting. And nobody was madder in this town than me when they said, you can't play Dixie and you can't wave the Confederate flag. Made me really mad. But then I started having African-American friends. And then my best friend in college was a black guy. And I started seeing, you know what? It means something different to him than it means to me. And, and so I came to a different conclusion you know what? Love costs you something. Am I willing to give up a symbol that for a vast majority, for a majority, a majority of people in this city stands for hatred just because I like the way it looks? I don't know about you, but I'll answer for me. I've given it up. And I'm proud of a governor who says, we don't have to forget our history. Put it in a museum where it belongs. But for the state grounds, it should represent every Alabamian? No, it doesn't belong there. You see, it's about love. Some of you are mad at me right now. Some of you are going to talk to me in the lobby. I'll make one deal with you. You can tell me anything you want to. If before you talk to me, you'll go to an African-American member of this church and you ask them what that flag means to them. And if you're okay with making them feel right, feel that way, then come talk to me. Because we're talking about a radical kind of love that says, you know what, I can give up some things because of somebody else. That's what really excited me this week. That's very saddened by what the Supreme Court decided. Not because I hate anybody, don't like anybody. I like what Justice Roberts said to his fellow judges. He said, who do we think we are? 
that we can redefine marriage. It saddens me, but it's an opportunity for us to practice what we're preaching today, and that's to love people the way Christ has loved us. And and we studied from the Apostle Paul a pretty good advice, is that what we are to do is we are to speak the truth in love. And let me tell you, in the culture we live in, it's going to cost us to speak this truth. It is going to be very difficult in coming days to hold a biblical view of marriage and not pay a price. But we've got to be willing to pay it. Not because we don't like somebody, but because we believe God's plan. And we're going to trust him. And sometimes the most loving thing to say to someone is not the thing they, need to, they want to hear. Now, for some of us, the difficult part of this whole issue is going to be to speak the truth. I know for especially younger generation, this is a hard one for you, a really hard one. Are we willing to speak the truth? For some of us, the issue is going to be, do we speak it in love? Do we join the haters? I think we can do both. I think we can speak the truth in love, and we can love each other the way Jesus loved us. Look at a passage with me for a moment. Go to 1 John chapter 3, and let's just look how practical. This same John, as he thinks about love, writes about love. 1 John chapter 3. Just see some of the things that John says there about how we love each other. 1 John chapter 3. Let's look, first of all, let's look in verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Isn't that crazy? The most loving people on earth could be hated. Verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. And then look at verse 14. No, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Here's the standard. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What's he saying? Guys, loving each other is not about being nice to people. It's simply about doing the right thing for people at the right time. So let's love one another. Let's go to number three. When we love, the world cannot help but notice. So we've seen three things here. Who we love, how we love, and when we love. But... Jesus would say here is here's what I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you guys with a game plan. You want the church to explode? You want to reach more and more people for Jesus? It's not about all the things you can do and not do. They might be helpful, but you really want the church to be what it ought to be and for everyone to step up and take notice. It's when people can come among us and experience a love they can't experience anywhere else. We've seen that over the last couple weeks, haven't we? I want you to watch a video clip from Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston as they stand, as the families of those slain stand before Dylan Roof and address him. Watch this. I just want to invite you now to you. I forgive 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 you. Be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. 
and I forgive you. Saying the same thing that was just saying. You know, I forgive you and my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most. Christ. So that he can change it. Can change your ways no matter what happened to you. And you'll be okay. Do that. And you'll be better off than what you are right now. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And, and I'll never be the same. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. But as we say in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just freshly standing before the one who came in the middle of a Bible study, sat there for an hour, then one by one picked off nine souls, and then for the families to be able to stand up and say, I love you with the love of Christ. I forgive you. I love this. Even the national media couldn't cover this up. Even, even they had to stand in amazement. Look at a, a couple of tweets that showed up afterwards. I'm an atheist, but watching the victim's relatives offer forgiveness to Dylan Roof is an inspiring testimony to religious faith. I'm a non-Christian, I must say. This is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. That's what Jesus said. When my people can love this way, even the world has to stand up and notice that's not the way normal people act. And you can't argue with that kind of love. In fact, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Not our view on this or that or what we do in this building on Sundays. What they will know, they will know we're his disciples when they see that kind of love. So let me close out this morning. Are you loved this way? Uh, this is the way Jesus wants you to love. And this is the way Jesus wants you to be loved. And I ask today, are you experiencing this kind of love? If you don't have this kind of love in your life, then I invite you to allow us as a church to love you this way. I'm not telling you we'll always do perfect, but I'm telling you the best people I know are in this room right now. And I've seen them do it time after time again when they will love the unlovable, when they will love the person that's down and out, and they will love the person who doesn't feel that kind of love. And so today, if you're searching for that kind of love, Jesus would say, if we will be obedient to him and get over ourselves, we can give you that kind of love. If we've blown it in the past, let me ask you, would you give us another chance? And then here's the more important question is, are you loving this way? Are you going out of your way to love people? Or are you the one extending the kind of love that we see on that video to even the people who have done you wrong? I know that's not easy. But that's the kind of love that Jesus has called us. 
So maybe today you need the prayers of the church because somehow your heart has become bitter. Somehow your heart has become unforgiving. Maybe somehow you have become very prejudiced toward people and you're having a hard time overcoming that. And I'm telling you, the answer is Jesus. And the answer is for you and I to see the amazing love he has for us when we're screwed up sinners. And then we extend it to other people. You see, when you experience this, you can't leave it. I mean, this kind of love is so different and so radical. If you think this is just a trite little sermon on a sweet little verse, then you've not heard anything I've said. This is a call for radical love. And when you experience it and your friends experience it and your family experiences it, you won't ever want to leave it. We're about to sing this song. Show the words. You know the song, Blessed Be the Tie. But do you know the story behind the song? It was written by a man in England named John Fawcett. He was orphaned at 12 years old. He heard the famous evangelist George Whitfield preach, and he gave his life to Jesus. At age 25, he went to a small church in Waynesworth, England to preach. It was a poor church just made of farmers and people struggling with life. They could hardly pay him. They brought him produce, and they paid him, you know, with what they grew. He was married to a lady named Anne. They began to have children, and they could hardly make ends meet. After a few years at that little church, he was called by a large church in London to go preach. It was a no-brainer. He accepted. And then they were having the going-away party, and they were about to take off They had everything loaded, and they were ready to go where it'd be a lot easier. But they had been with these people for years, and their faces were drenched with tears. And when they're just about to take off, John's wife, Anne, speaks up. She says, John, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I know not how to go. I can't leave these people. And John said, I can't either. And they unloaded their wagon, and they stayed with those people for 54 years. And the love was so deep, he wrote a song that starts like this. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is light to that above. What we're inviting you to experience and what we're inviting you to give today is a love that is so awesome, it could only come from above. If you need that love right now, or if you need to learn how to express that love and get over yourself, we'd love to pray for you before you get out of here. Let's stand together and sing this great hymn.